Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussion of animal abuse and dog fighting. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under the age of 13. Behind the main house at 1915 Moonlight Road in Smithfield, Virginia, were a series of shed-like buildings. They were partially hidden by the trees and painted black to make them even less noticeable. Inside, over 60 dogs sat in cages. Wednesday, April 25th, 2007, was an average day at Michael Vick's Bad News Kennels. It was a significantly better day than Monday when they'd had to put down eight dogs that were underperforming in their fights. The animals were hanged, drowned, and beaten to death. But today, the 25th, was free of any executions. It was a routine day of training and practice fights. The kennel operators retired to the main house for the evening. They'd call Vic soon and give him the day's report. But not long after sundown, the grounds at 1915 Moonlight Road were flooded by a cavalcade of police cars, their lights flashing and sirens blaring. A task force of state, local, and federal authorities shouted through a bullhorn. They had a search warrant. A group of state troopers walked through the backyard and towards the hidden black sheds past the fences, barely visible in the night. As they approached, they heard something strange but familiar. When they got closer, the troopers realized what they were hearing. Whining, whimpering dogs. The cops hadn't discovered a drug ring as they suspected. They discovered something far more violent. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. 
We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Last week, we followed Michael Vick's childhood as he rose from a dangerous neighborhood to being a star quarterback in college at Virginia Tech and finally to the NFL with the Atlanta Falcons. But while his football career lifted him out of his treacherous circumstances in Newport News, he couldn't leave one element of his hometown behind, dogfighting. He used his NFL salary to found Bad News Kennels. This week, we'll cover how Vic's involvement with dogfighting was revealed, the consequences that Vic faced, and the impact that his crimes had on both the wider world and the dogs themselves. In 2005, 25-year-old Michael Vick was at the pinnacle of American professional sports. He'd just signed a six-year contract extension, making him the highest-paid quarterback in the NFL. He'd carried his team, the Atlanta Falcons, to the brink of the NFC Championship game the season before. His future looked brighter than ever. Unfortunately, the next two seasons turned out to be disappointments for the Falcons. In 2005, the team started well, but injuries took their toll. The team lost six of their final eight games, missing the playoffs despite Vic's continued quality play. The next season was more of the same. Vic had his best year yet as an NFL player, becoming the first quarterback ever to rush for over 1,000 yards, but it was all for naught. The team once again lost six of their final eight games and missed the playoffs. Alongside his football career, Michael Vick was also living a double life centered around an estate he owned in Surrey County, Virginia. In the backyard of that estate, hidden by high fencing and dark walls, Vick ran bad news kennels. There, dogs were trained to fight, pitted against one another, and killed when they lost. Nearly every Tuesday during the NFL season, his only off day, Vic traveled to the kennels and worked hands-on with the dogfighting operation. He hosted fights in the upstairs area of the kennels and in the off-season traveled around the southeast with his dogs to participate in organized fights. Well, some say Vic was more passionate about dogfighting than he was about football, that he studied his dogs and training strategies more than he studied NFL game film. It's true that it was more than a hobby. It was effectively a second job, separated from his football life in Atlanta by one hour-long flight. Vic never believed that his worlds would collide. He took pains to keep his dogfighting activities secret from his teammates and coaches. He thought that would be enough, and for over half a decade, he was right. From 2001 to 2007, the Bad News Kennels operated smoothly. Vic thought he had nothing to worry about. That confidence in his own security trickled down to his friends working and living at Bad News Kennels. On a day in early 2007, a neighbor knocked on the front door of 1915 Moonlight Road with some news. State police had paid them a visit, asking if they could install surveillance cameras on the neighbor's land. 
The police wanted to keep tabs on who was coming in and out of Bad News Kennels. But Vic's friends weren't concerned that state police were investigating them. In fact, they were so sure they were secure that they didn't even tell Vic about the neighbor's visit. Besides, Vic had other things on his mind, like increasing his public profile. On April 24, 2007, 26-year-old Michael Vick was scheduled to appear at a congressional breakfast in Washington, D.C. to support the importance of after-school programs. However, his flight was canceled. Vick opted to take a later flight to Virginia, and he missed his appointment on Capitol Hill. Instead of going to D.C., he went home to Newport News. To explain his absence, Vick put out a statement through his publicist blaming the airline. It's possible that Vic just didn't really care about lobbying on Capitol Hill, about the after-school programs, or about anyone else. He seemed to believe he was untouchable. Two days later, Vic was on a golf course in Atlanta, Georgia. The situation in Washington, D.C. was already out of sight and out of mind. Instead, Vic was focused on playing one of the best rounds of golf in his life. Then he received a phone call that changed his life forever. It was from one of his best friends back in Virginia. Bad News Kennels had been raided by the police. State police cruisers had pulled up to the estate late the previous night, armed with a search warrant. The raid actually had nothing to do with dogfighting. It was precipitated by a small narcotics investigation. Well, the week before, one of Vic's friends was arrested for marijuana distribution. Knowing that there were a few dark sheds at the back of 1915 Moonlight Road, the police organized a raid. But instead of finding drugs, they found the entire Bad News Kennels operation. The police recovered 66 dogs, pit bulls, and other breeds who showed clear signs of abuse. Many were injured or malnourished, and some were near death. They also recovered a stand used to hold dogs in place for mating, an electric dog treadmill, and a bloody piece of carpeting from the area where dogfights were held. This small-time narcotics bust was suddenly significantly more serious. After hearing the news, Vic stood motionless on the golf course with his phone in his hand, engulfed in shock. His double life was exposed. For a brief moment, he thought his life was over. But he quickly calmed himself down. He assured himself that somehow, some way, he could get out of this, just as he'd gotten out of any controversy or brush with the law in the past few years. Vic may have still thought, despite this news, that he was untouchable. The rest of the day, Vic and his team were besieged with requests for comments from reporters, but Vic refused to say anything. He had two options. Immediately come clean and face the consequences, or attempt to lie his way out of it. It was an easy choice for Vic. He decided to lie. He put out a statement the next day claiming he'd never even been to the house on Moonlight Road. He had no knowledge of the activities happening there. Three days after the raid, he met with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell in New York City. Alone with Goodell, Vic reportedly continued to lie. He claimed complete ignorance of the dogfighting and once again said he'd never spent time at the estate he owned in Surrey County. He allegedly shifted all the blame, telling Goodell it was his friends and family who were involved in dogfighting, not him. Reports have said he repeated the same falsehoods to the Atlanta Falcons coach and the owner, Arthur Blank. 
And initially, all three men chose to believe Vic and continued to support him. Over the next month and a half, the investigation, which involved the local sheriff's department and both state and federal authorities, concluded. Vic simply kept his head down, choosing not to comment on the investigation to the press and hoping that he'd be exonerated. But the world was already reacting harshly. PETA put out a statement the day after the raid calling for the Falcons owner to suspend Vic or even kick him off the team if the dogfighting allegations were true. Anti-Vic protests were planned for the beginning of Falcons training camp in the summer. AirTran Airways, for which Vic had been a spokesman since 2004, canceled his contract. On June 7th, 2007, federal investigators raided Bad News Kennels again. This time, they were looking for dead dogs. An informant had told the FBI that there were as many as 30 dogs buried on the property. After a day of searching, the investigators found seven dog corpses. 30 miles away in Newport News, Michael Vick abruptly canceled the youth football camp he was scheduled to host that day. He spent the next few weeks waiting for the inevitable, for his guilt to be revealed. On July 17, 2007, the inevitable finally came. A federal grand jury in Richmond, Virginia, charged Michael Vick and three co-conspirators with three felonies. Dogfighting itself, the procuring and training of pit bulls for fighting purposes, and engaging in dogfighting activities across state lines. The cat was out of the bag. The only question was what kind of consequences Vick would face. Coming up, Michael Vick is taken to court to answer for his crimes. Now back to the story. By July of 2007, 27-year-old Michael Vick's life had blown up. The dogfighting operation he'd run for six years in rural Virginia had been discovered, putting not just his NFL career at risk, but his freedom as well. He was charged with a federal felony and two state felonies related to dogfighting and faced up to six years in prison. Public sentiment sharply turned against him. After the charges were announced, dozens of animal rights advocates and angry fans protested the first week of the Falcons' training camp, urging the team to cut Vic. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell ultimately decided to bar Vic from participating in training camp until the league came to its own conclusions in the dogfighting matter. On July 26th, Michael Vick and three co-conspirators officially pleaded not guilty to the charges against them. Vick defiantly stated to the press that he was prepared to clear his name and was both booed and cheered as he left the courthouse. He and his lawyers were ready to take the case to trial. But the case wouldn't make it that far. Vic's three co-conspirators, each of whom had prior criminal convictions, eventually flipped. They each agreed to plead guilty and testify against Vic in exchange for a lesser sentence. Once that happened, it was all over. Vic had run out of options. He couldn't lie his way out of this one. So on August 27th, 2007, 27-year-old Vic officially pleaded guilty in front of a federal judge. Vic held a press conference immediately after his guilty plea. With the eyes of the entire nation on him, Vic glumly apologized for his actions and his crimes. He promised that he would redeem himself. 
In the aftermath of the guilty plea, NFL Commissioner Goodell suspended Vic indefinitely from the league. Soon after, the Atlanta Falcons sued to recover $20 million from Vic's 2005 signing bonus, claiming that his criminal activity voided the contract. Kiafa Frink, Vic's girlfriend and mother of his two children, suggested that they should escape instead of staying and going to jail. It was plausible for them to simply leave the U.S. and escape consequences. But Vic refused. He wanted to serve his time, rehabilitate his image, and eventually make his way back into an NFL uniform. On November 20, 2007, 27-year-old Michael Vick surrendered himself to federal authorities to begin his sentence early. It was both a way of currying favor with the courts and a way to gain back some trust after failing a court-mandated drug test two months earlier, testing positive for marijuana. When he left his home on the morning of the 20th, Vick said goodbye to Kiafa and their daughters, knowing he would be gone for at least a year. The plea deal he signed in August laid out a suggested sentence of 12 to 18 months. Just before turning himself in, Vic visited his grandmother, the woman who had first introduced him to football two decades prior. His grandmother had developed Alzheimer's disease and didn't really know the trouble that he had gotten himself into. When he left, she asked where he was going. Vic didn't have it in him to tell her the truth, so he said he was going to training camp. From his grandmother's house, Vic's security guard drove him and Kiafa the 45 miles to the courthouse in Richmond. Vic cried the entire car ride. When they reached the courthouse, Vic walked inside and immediately had his hands and ankles cuffed. He was taken from the courthouse to a regional jail in Northern Virginia. There, he spent the next three weeks awaiting sentencing. The first day in jail was a shock for Vic. To go from his million-dollar mansion to a Spartan cinderblock jail cell was nearly too much for him to take. He found himself fighting back a panic attack. For the first time, the consequences for his actions felt truly real. The consequences weren't just jail time. On November 28th, federal prosecutors ordered Vic to pay $1 million for the care of the pit bulls recovered from Bad News Kennels. That money would be used to pay for both long-term care and for the euthanasia of the dogs who were already too injured. On December 10, 2007, Vic appeared before the U.S. District Court in Richmond, Virginia to be sentenced. Wearing an orange jumpsuit, a blank-faced Vic stood and heard an earful from the presiding federal judge. The judge spoke harshly, citing Vic's lies about his participation in the dogfighting ring and his failures to fully cooperate with authorities. He also criticized Vic's previous apologies, calling them insincere, and alleging that he tried to downplay and mitigate his own role in the crimes. Ultimately, the judge sentenced Vic to 23 months in prison, significantly more than the 12 to 18 months Vic expected he'd receive. He and his family were crestfallen as he was led away. Vic was taken to the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, to serve the majority of his term. As Michael Vic finally faced the consequences of his actions, the victims of those actions, the dogs, faced their own long journey towards recovery. 
In the immediate aftermath of the raid on Bad News Kennels, there were differences of opinion on how to handle the rescued dogs. One opinion, expressed by both PETA and the Humane Society of the U.S., was that the dogs were simply too far gone. Because of the abuse they'd suffered, they would never be able to be rehabilitated and live a normal life. They argued that the dogs from Bad News Kennels should be euthanized. Due to the high-profile nature of the case, however, the authorities involved knew they had to try to save the dogs. The U.S. District Attorney got the help of the ASPCA and Pitbull specialists to evaluate each rescued animal to determine if they could be helped. Ultimately, out of the 51 dogs rescued from Bad News Kennels, 47 were saved. One was determined to be too dangerous and was euthanized, and three died soon after rescue from their injuries. The 47 rescued dogs were split up and taken in by eight animal rescue organizations. 25 were taken in by foster homes and other organizations to learn to live a normal life and eventually be adopted. The remaining 22, who had more serious problems, went to an animal sanctuary in Utah with the hope that after more time to recover, they could also be adopted. As his abused dogs struggled to adjust to normal life away from dogfighting, Michael Vick struggled to adjust to life inside a federal prison. His fame put a target on his back, both for fellow inmates looking for a fight and for prison guards trying to provoke him. Vic got a job as a late-night janitor, earning 12 cents an hour, sleeping during the day and avoiding other people as much as possible. He took a bizarre sort of pride in his work, which earned him a grand total of $11 a month. It was the first job he'd ever had that wasn't playing football. On Sundays, Vic watched NFL games along with his fellow inmates, who would bombard him with questions about being a quarterback. Vic was happy to oblige them, both as a way to keep his mind sharp and as a way to remind himself of what potentially awaited him once he served his time. Still, on April 28, 2008, six months into his incarceration, Vic hit rock bottom. It was his mother's birthday, and he hated that he was missing it. His melancholy only worsened when he received a phone call telling him that his grandmother had a stroke. To add insult to injury, Later in the evening, Michael Vick watched on TV as his team, the Atlanta Falcons, used their third overall pick to select Matt Ryan, a highly touted quarterback out of Boston College. The Falcons had their quarterback of the future, and it wasn't Michael Vick. There would be no second chance for him in Atlanta after his release from prison. A week later, Vick's grandmother died. Vick was not permitted to attend her funeral. Family and football weren't the only two things causing heartache for Vic. He also had significant problems with his finances. After he first signed with the Falcons, Vic spent money like water. By the time he went to jail in 2007, he owned four houses and 14 cars, along with boats and numerous pieces of expensive jewelry. He was able to keep spending thanks to lucrative endorsement deals as well as the mega-contract extension he signed in 2004. But in the aftermath of the dogfighting scandal, it all went away. His endorsements were canceled. The Falcons fought to recoup as much of his contract extension as they could, and the rest of his money was eaten up by legal fees. 
In the summer of 2008, Vic filed for bankruptcy. He was eventually ordered to pay $20 million to his various creditors. Vic knew there was only one way he could make enough money to wipe away his debts. It was also the only way he saw to get his life back on track after prison and redeem himself in the public eye. He would somehow need to get back on the football field. When we come back, Vic stages his comeback in the NFL. Now, back to the story. On May 20th, 2009, after 18 months behind bars, 28-year-old Michael Vick was released from federal prison. His girlfriend, Kiafa, picked him up from Leavenworth Prison in Kansas, and the two of them drove the 18 hours back home to Virginia. When they arrived, their house was surrounded by an armada of reporters and news vans. They had to slip past the media swarm to get inside quietly and reunite with their children. Vic spent the first two months out of prison in house confinement, wearing an ankle bracelet. He was only allowed to leave the house to work a construction job, then a job for the Boys and Girls Club. The week after his home confinement ended, Vic met with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. It was the first time the two of them had spoken since their meeting two years earlier, when Vic had lied and claimed he had nothing to do with the dogfighting operation. Now, Vic apologized for his actions. He'd served his time, he was a different man, and he was ready to get back on the field. Goodell agreed to provisionally reinstate Vic for the 2009 preseason. Because the Falcons had cut ties with Vic, he was an unrestricted free agent and able to sign with any team. Signing Vic was a risky proposition. It wasn't just a question of whether he could still play. It was also a question of whether his play was worth the backlash that would inevitably result. The Philadelphia Eagles were willing to take that risk. On August 13, 2009, 29-year-old Vic signed a one-year deal with the Eagles to be the backup to quarterback Donovan McNabb. McNabb had defeated Vic and the Falcons twice in the playoffs, and now the two were teammates. As expected, when the Eagles announced they'd signed Michael Vick, the public was immediately outraged. A group of fans protested outside the press conference announcing Vic's signing. One held a sign that read, Hold your beagle, Vic is an eagle. Others showed their displeasure in more direct ways. Some longtime Eagle fans sold their season tickets in protest, refusing to support a team that would employ a convicted abuser of dogs. A local sandwich shop owner in Philadelphia publicly announced that he would never serve Michael Vick. Vick tried to take it all in stride. In his introductory press conference, Vick again emphasized his remorse for his actions and stated his understanding that some fans would never forgive the crimes he committed. But he was still here to play. That was what he wanted to focus on. And Vick had his work cut out for him. It had been nearly two years since he'd been able to simply run outside on a field, let alone practice with a team. He wasn't up to playing shape and activated on the roster until the third week of the season. Starter Donovan McNabb was out for the game, nursing a broken rib, so backup quarterback Kevin Cobb led the offense. Vic would be deployed as a wildcat quarterback, used sparingly for plays when they'd want to take advantage of his running ability. So in the third game of the season, on September 27, 2009, 
29-year-old Michael Vick took the field for the first time since the dogfighting scandal broke. It had been exactly 1,001 days since he had last played an NFL snap. Vick heard both cheers and boos as he jogged onto the field. It was a scoreless game in the middle of the first quarter against the lowly Kansas City Chiefs. On a first and 10, Vic took the ball and ran to the right for seven yards before being tackled. As he got up, Vic felt elated. He was back. Well, Vic didn't play much that first game or for the rest of the season. As the third string quarterback, his use was mostly limited to wildcat formations. By the end of the year, he had only attempted 13 passes and 23 rushes. But more importantly, Vic felt that he had proven himself. He could still play this game. The Eagles had a good year, going 11-5 and securing a playoff berth, but were defeated in the first round by the Dallas Cowboys. Well, the offseason began with uncertainty for Michael Vick. Some tension was alleviated when the Eagles picked up the 2010 option in his contract, but he still didn't know whether he would remain in Philadelphia. There were numerous rumors during the spring that he would be traded. In April, just before the draft, the Eagles instead traded starter Donovan McNabb to the Redskins. It was a show of confidence in backup quarterback Kevin Cobb and in third-string quarterback Michael Vick. Still, Vick's situation was tenuous, made even more difficult after an incident at his 30th birthday party in June. Quanice Phillips, one of Vick's convicted associates, showed up at the gathering. Vick and Phillips got into an argument. Since they were both still on probation, they weren't supposed to have any contact. Vic and his family decided to leave the party to avoid any consequences. A few minutes later, Quanice Phillips was shot. Phillips survived the shooting, and although the police cleared Vic of any involvement, it was yet another brush with the law for Vic and yet another reminder for the Eagles of the risk they were taking by having him on the team. Still, the Eagles remained committed to Vic as their backup quarterback. They believed, as did Vic, that he still had the athletic ability that made him one of the best quarterbacks in the league before his imprisonment. He just needed an opportunity to prove it. He got his chance on September 12, 2010, just before halftime in the season opener against the Packers. Kevin Cobb took a hard hit from Green Bay linebacker Clay Matthews. Cobb's head slammed into the ground as he fumbled the ball out of bounds. Cobb briefly returned to play in the next drive, but he was clearly concussed. As the team headed into the locker room during halftime, the writing was on the wall. Michael Vick would be the Eagles quarterback for the rest of the game. Vick returned to the field determined to prove himself. He felt like he was back at Virginia Tech, stepping out on the field for the first time. He had everything to prove. The second half began well, with a 23-yard run and a completed pass, though the drive ended prematurely when a receiver fumbled the ball. Down 20-3, Vic and the Eagles mounted a comeback attempt. Vic gave a vintage performance, throwing for 175 yards and a touchdown, and rushing for another 103 yards. But the Eagles couldn't quite manage to tie the game, and they lost by a score of 27 to 20. But once again, Vic may have lost the battle, but he'd won the war. He'd shown he had what it takes. 
Kevin Cobb's concussion kept him benched for the next game against the Lions, but the Eagles' offense didn't miss a beat. Vic gave another dominant performance, passing and rushing for over 300 yards total and throwing two touchdowns in a 38-31 win. In his third game, he threw for three touchdowns and ran for another to blow out the Jacksonville Jaguars 28-3. Vic was named the NFC Offensive Player of the Month for September, and his comeback was nearly complete. When Kevin Cobb recovered from his injury, Eagles head coach Andy Reid stuck with Michael Vick. He was their starting quarterback for the rest of the season. The Michael Vick forgiveness movement was in full swing. Fans and sports writers who had initially criticized the Vick signing were now supporting him. President Obama called the owner of the Eagles and thanked him for giving Michael Vick a second chance. And Vick's rehabilitation included more than just gridiron heroics. He also sought to prove his changed ways by becoming a spokesman for the Humane Society of the U.S., releasing video PSAs and visiting schools to raise awareness of animal abuse. Even the federal judge who had been skeptical of Vic's remorse gave an interview applauding Vic's transformation, calling him an example of how the system can work. Meanwhile, the Eagles kept winning. Despite trading away their star quarterback before the season and losing their new one to injury, the team managed to go 10-6 and and qualify for the playoffs. Vic's magical season was capped with an improbable come-from-behind victory against their divisional rival, the New York Giants. The Eagles scored 28 unanswered points in the fourth quarter to erase a 21-point deficit. Eagles fans dubbed it the new miracle at the new Meadowlands. Vic and the Eagles rode a wave of goodwill into the playoffs, where they faced the Green Bay Packers in the first round. Their playoff game against the Packers mirrored their first game of the season, also against the Packers. The Eagles were losing by 11 points at halftime, but rallied and closed the gap to five points by the end of the fourth quarter. But like the first game of the season, they came just short. Their season ended when Vic threw an interception in the end zone, concluding any chance at a comeback. Despite the fact that his season once again ended in failure, Vic had successfully reestablished himself as one of the game's top players. He won the Associated Press 2010 NFL Comeback Player of the Year Award and was selected for the 2011 Pro Bowl. After the season, he signed another long-term contract extension for six years and $100 million. Less than two years after being released from prison, Michael Vick was once again on top of the world. Michael Vick stayed with the Eagles through the next season, but the team regressed, going 8-8 and missing the playoffs. In the following season, in 2012, Vic eventually lost the starting QB job to rookie Nick Foles. Vic played for three more years, mostly as a backup quarterback for the New York Jets and finally the Pittsburgh Steelers. After failing to be signed during the 2016 season, 36-year-old Michael Vick officially announced his retirement from football on February 3, 2017. Vick retired with 6,109 rushing yards the most of any quarterback in the history of the NFL. Since retiring, Vic has remained involved with football, working as a TV analyst and as an interim coach with the Kansas City Chiefs under his former coach, Andy Reid. 
He's also continued to work as an animal advocate, lobbying for the passage of a bill that made being a spectator at a dogfight illegal. Still, his crimes have not been forgotten. In late 2019, when Vic was announced as an honorary captain at the 2020 Pro Bowl, it was met with significant backlash. Over half a million people signed an online petition calling for his removal, citing the stories of the dogs kept at Bad News Kennels. Of the 47 dogs who were rescued from Vic's kennel, all but six were eventually adopted and lived normal lives. 25 were adopted out of foster homes, while 16 were rehabilitated at an animal sanctuary in Utah before being adopted. The six who were not adopted still live at the sanctuary. The high-profile nature of Michael Vick's crimes changed the way that authorities dealt with dogs rescued from dogfighting operations. Previously, those dogs were automatically labeled dangerous and euthanized. In the years after Vick's case, there's been more work done to save and rehabilitate rescued fighting dogs. As of 2019, 11 of the dogs rescued from Vic's kennel are still alive, enjoying the world outside their kennels. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast. Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 